Morning, everyone. Morning to those at home, online, in Tasmania, watching. Just a quick update. Oh, thanks. That's going to be very helpful eventually. Just a quick update on Sunnybank. We, God has been good to us. We've just appointed a new associate pastor. You may or may not have heard about that. Tracy Valentine, who's going to be over our children and families ministry, so we're grateful to that. She and her husband, Glenn, are at Sunnybank for their first Sunday today, and next Sunday she will be inducted. Um, and then at the same time as we called Tracy to come and be a pastor amongst us, we had a very um, appropriate gift. We have a person who has just returned to our church, came a long, long time ago before I started, so over 20 years ago, and he owned, owned, past tense, two childcare centres. <clears throat> Still has one, but he's selling one and developing the site. And that has all, you know, playgroup equipment and stuff on it. He said, if you want it, you can have it. So the only deal is you've got to come and get it. And so we did. And uh, we're going to put that down, if you know our property, then down near Hope House. And so but the, this new children's section and... So God is obviously doing something... Uh, in our area and in our church, particularly in the area of children and families. So we're grateful for that. Uh, I'm a little bit injured this morning. Um, I've done something to my knee. It's, it's, I've twisted it or done something, so that's why if you see me hobbling, uh, then just say a quick prayer. And to let everybody know, Tim only made one mistake during the announcements. There's not one birthday this week. Joyce is getting a birthday on Friday. My birthday is this week. Can't believe you forgot. <clears throat> For those who want bank details or give suggestions, then I'll be available after the service for that. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. I was going to be here next week because I thought we'd be inducting Tracy today and I would have had chapter seven to do, one chapter. But I came this week in which I have three chapters to wade through. It's a long one commentator said, this is the most oppressive part of the book of Ecclesiastes. So if I do my job correctly, you'll all be depressed by the end of this service. <laughs> we'll try not to do that. How about we pray together? Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. Thank you that you are good to us. And Lord, we thank you for your word and the gift of your Son and Spirit. May your Spirit take this portion of your word and reveal to us more of your Son. We ask and pray in his name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. I've entitled this sermon, Living Under the Sun, because that certainly is the perspective of Solomon when he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He is looking at life honestly, but horizontally. And there are several times in the book, and chapter 5 is one of them, and you've just been through one, he does it also in chapter 3, where he takes a vertical look, he looks up to God, and that's very necessary to do. But in the process, he is being very honest, he's looking at life realistically, there's no rose-coloured glasses, there's no positive spin, he is very observant and very honest about how tough life can be, that it's not fair, that it's filled with injustice and corruption. It's not fair, that life doesn't always work out. The good people don't always get rewarded and the bad people don't always get punished. It's like a jungle. 
if we're honest about it. I'm not sure about you, but I don't like to look at life that way. I like to look at life positively. I like to look for the good things, for the upbeat things. I don't want to be depressed, I want to be happy. And so that's my perspective, and I dare say for many of us that's the same perspective. Um, so this morning is going to be a little bit like reading a newspaper, you know? All the bad news. But in the midst of it, there is also good news. God has placed this book in His Word because He really wants us, to be honest, to give us a glimpse of what life is really like in order that we can consider life as He wants us to live it. Ultimately, that's what Ecclesiastes will do for us. It's easy to see Solomon's growth. When he was a young man, he wrote the Song of Solomon. So, as a young man and deeply in love with a woman. And then, as he middle ages, he writes some of the book of Proverbs, in which he's writing to his son and trying to warn him, don't make the mistakes that I made. By the time you get to Ecclesiastes, he's more like an elderly man. Chapter 12, he talks about, you know, consider now the Creator in the days of your youth. Um, and he has some wise parting advice. Basically, he says, and chapter 5 is really the application of the first four chapters. And then he'll do a deep dive again into what's wrong with the world and then he'll get to chapter 12 and he'll come with another application. This one is to remember God and to fear him. In chapter 12 it's going to be remember God, fear him and obey him. And scattered through the book is this reference to um, God is the one who is going to judge us. So I'm going to race through, so if you put a seatbelt on it's going to be like drinking from a fire hose I think. I'm just going to skate across the top of it because I don't want to go too deeply into it. I encourage you to read the passage again. I'm going to read a verse here and a verse there and give you the outline of it. And one of my frustrations and wrestles this week has been that I'm going to give you at least a dozen points and you're not going to remember them. I don't remember them. So the only, all I can do is give you an outline and hopefully as you read through the book, some of God will use some of this outline to assist you in understanding it. So living under the sun, life from the horizontal perspective, not as we know it through Jesus. Uh, we have a revelation that Solomon did not have and we have an understanding that he did not have. But nonetheless, Ecclesiastes is there because God inspired it to help us discover him. In terms of introduction, I think I've, I've given you that. I don't want to say anything else. Chapters four, uh, in chapter 4, he starts off and he lists pretty much the theme is loneliness, that we tend to isolate ourselves, that we tend to withdraw. And he looks at three different societal behaviours that make us disconnected from God, certainly, but also disconnected from one another. And that's not how God made us. I'm not talking about aloneness, because we all need some time when we need to be alone, don't we? You just got to sometimes debrief and let off steam and all that. I'm not talking about aloneness, nor is he talking about lonesomeness, which is where I can be parted from my wife for a temporary period of time. And you might feel lonely in that period of time, but it's temporary. You know, that she might go to the hospital or your pastor might go to Tasmania or something and you miss him. But it's temporary. You know that the solution's going, that's lonesomeness. What Solomon is talking about is loneliness. And you can be lonely in the midst of a crowd. You just don't feel connected. You don't feel loved. You don't feel accepted. 
and he's addressing that heartache. And what causes it? Well, the first cause is cruelty and oppression, as he sees it. Um, Verse 1, did I give you verse 1? Again, I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun in this life, is his perspective. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they have no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppression, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So there are people who oppress others, do the wrong thing to others, sometimes even enjoying that, and those who are mistreated are tearful, and they have no way out. There's no solution to the dilemma that they are facing. They, of course, could rebel, they could retaliate, but then that just leads to more heartache as well. And often what you have when you have unjust governments and you throw them out, then the government that replaces them ends up doing exactly the same sorts of things, oppressing those who are under them. Of course, this can happen in families and business, can happen in a church. And Solomon could, in fact, be talking even about himself because he's the king and he's the author of this book. And it's almost like he's looked out and he has observed this terrible thing that goes on, the cruelty and oppression that goes on in the world, and he's the cause of it. He's behind it. But he doesn't do anything about it. He acknowledges it, but he has no intentions of changing his perspective. And he'll go on to say in verses 2 and 3 that having thought about that, sometimes I think the dead are better off. They don't go through the heartache and the struggle. We sometimes say that too. You see somebody who's got cancer or they've got an illness and that when they finally pass away, we sometimes say they're better off. At least all their suffering has ended. Well, that's sort of like the perspective he's got and it's dangerous because he doesn't have the revelation we have about there is life after death, that there is a heaven that you can go to because of Jesus, as Tim has reminded us. But not everybody goes to heaven. So it's not necessarily true that the dead are better off. If you go to heaven, you will be. But if you don't, if you go to whatever you want to call it, Hades, the place where those who do not believe in God go, then you are not better off, you're worse off. Second thing he talks about in verses 4 to 6 in chapter 4 is about competition. This um, desire or this envy that people have. He looks out on life and he makes the observation, then I saw that all of the toil and skill, all of the work and all of the effort that people put into their life comes from our envy of our neighbour. Why do we work? So that I can earn money. Why do you want money? So that I can buy a car. Why do you want a car? Well, he's got a car. He's got something that I want. I should have it. And so I work hard in order to do that. And Solomon's observation is that's what often drives people in our society, envy, drivenness. And again, that can happen in marriages, in families, in churches. There's a very sad story told to Raphael and Michelangelo brilliant artists, both commissioned to come and decorate the Vatican, and they did do that, but they had a falling out. They got jealous of each other, there was envy, to the point where even when they passed each other in the corridor, they wouldn't make eye contact with each other, and they wouldn't talk to each other. Envy divides us, separates us. You might be the recipient of that. When I was at theological college, and we used to do our essays, when the lecturer had marked them, he would put all of the essays, with your marks on the front, in a, in a tray, and you would go to the office and collect your essay. That's exciting, isn't it? 
I had a guy in theological college who was jealous of me. And every time, not every time, often, he would be first up to the office and he would not only get his essay, he would get mine. And he would bring that back and give it to me. Which was really nice of him, isn't it? <laughs> he was looking at the mark. He was looking at, did I beat, did he beat me this time or did I beat him? And, and if I beat him, then what's the difference? And uh, that started in the first week when we were studying Greek together. And I was doing pretty good at it and I was doing a little bit better than him and he didn't like it. Very, mm, I won't say anymore. <laughs> Envy. Envy can wreck us. Jealousy. Then Solomon says, but sometimes um, to this envy that is driven by people, and in fact it was the first sin, wasn't it? It was envy that drove Cain to kill Abel. It's the worst sin that's ever been done, which is that's what killed the Lord Jesus. The Pharisees were envious of the Lord Jesus. That's one of the factors of why they assassinated him, why they crucified him. This urge that people have to get up and get on and be better than the others. That also leads to a a dropout mentality. Some people, the fool, Solomon calls them, folds his hands and he sits back. That leads to self-consumption. I'm not in the rat race. I'm not driven by all of this competition. I'm churning out of society. I'm unemployed. I'm living on welfare. And they don't contribute to society and they end up destroying themselves. That was his observation. Verse 6 of the same chapter, he says, it's much better... And it's a beautiful phrase. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. What he means is it's better to have one hand full from work and a handful of quietness, rest, enjoying what you have achieved and being content with that, as he will explain through the book. That's better than having two hands full. I've got an adorable, gorgeous-looking uh, little grandson. He's 18 months, nearly 20 months, I think. And every time you give him a biscuit with one hand, he wants a biscuit in the other hand. And he reminds me of this type thing that even at 18 months, we're starting to do it more, more, more. This is Solomon's observation. Then he goes on, verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter, to talk about drivenness. People are lonely, isolated, because they are driven. This is the Ebenezer Scrooge who amasses lots of wealth um, but is not content with it. And often very extremely rich people use wealth or possessions or whatever things and objects to replace people. They're incredibly wealthy but they're also very isolated. Again, Solomon could be doing some autobiographical stuff. People replace... Uh, some people replace their relationships with people with cars and homes and boats and toys and clothes and art and even pets. Some people prefer to have their pets than to have a relationship with other people. This is Solomon's observation on what contributes to this angst in life. There is oppression by those in authority, there's competition amongst us and there is this compulsive desire to acquire instead of having a meaningful relationship with one another. Well, what's the solution? Uh, I said that. The problem is loneliness. The solution is companionship. God didn't make us to be alone. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. God made us to be in relationship with him, but also with one another. In verses 9 and 12, he says, makes four observations. What's the advantage of being 
close or in partnership, cooperating, having fellowship after church at the cafe. Verse 9 says, two are better than one, having a good partnership. And when they work together, they are in fact far more productive. In verse 2, if one falls down, then the other one can lift them up. Not just physically, but also metaphorically. Think about mountain climbing, how they tie themselves together to assist one another. But if you have a brother or sister who falls emotionally or spiritually, morally, then you can be there to pick them up, to restore them. That's the idea. Companionship is much better than aloneness and pursuing wealth. Again, he says, if two lay down together, they keep warm, but how can you keep warm alone? Now, particularly in his context, the desert at night and travellers at night would suffer from the cold, so they would get their bodies close to each other. It's not a sexual thing, it's just a practical thing of keeping one another warm, just like they do in the Arctic today. People will try to maintain body warmth by sleeping together. Well, you obviously need a companion to do that with. And then finally, he talks about this mutual protection. If you get attacked or opposed by somebody, then having somebody else with you, you can help fight them off. And then he says, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. You've probably heard this referred to in marriages. I've reused this text in marriage services. Two is certainly better than one. That's his point. Well, three is better than two. That one cord holding up something is okay, but having two cords to it, that's even stronger. But having three cords is stronger than two. And particularly if you twin... uh, combine those three strands together, that becomes a very solid, difficult to break rope or cord. So too the application could be that in our relationships with one another but also with God, like a triangle, needing one another. That's the solution Solomon is pointing to. He doesn't have a lot of um, deep understanding about a relationship with God. He should, but he didn't because the wealth and women and nation and the economy and everything else distracted him greatly. One of the very saddest parts of Scripture is 1 Kings chapter 11, where it talks about Solomon had many wives, many foreign wives, and his heart was not fully devoted to God, and they led him astray. So here is this man at the end of his life, looking back and reflecting, and giving some negative observations, but also giving some clues, some hints of the best way forward. Now, I want to go to the next bit. There's another paragraph where he does a deep dive. What are the two things in life you don't talk about? Politics and... He's going to talk about politics in 4, 13 to 16. In chapter 5, verse 1 to 7, he's going to talk about religion. He puts them both together. He basically says in 4, 13 to 16, well, that's amongst the people. That's what it's like. What about for the people who are up the top? What about the really successful ones, you know, the political leaders, the king and and so on? What's it like for them? Well, he goes, he observes, and it's again some sort of self-reflection, isn't it? In the corridors of power, are they fulfilled? No. They have the same issues. And in fact, they face both stagnation as well as extinction. They're there, but they're there for a time, and they know that somebody's going to come and replace them, And as one American president described, being the president of the United States is like being an exhausted volcano. You take all your energy and strength to get there, and then when you get there, you've got hardly anything left. And you're only there for a short time. 
And he talks about how those in political power, they don't listen to advice, they lose touch with the people, and they in turn withdraw from the people. An extinction. They know someone younger is coming to replace them, and that when they are replaced, they'll be forgotten. Generations come and generations go, and for all the good they did or didn't do, it'll be forgotten. This is Solomon's observations. It's a depressing, it's an honest evaluation, but it's a bit depressive, isn't it? Then he comes to chapter 5 and he says, four or five times in the book, he stops looking horizontally and he starts looking vertically. And this is probably one of the strongest parts in the book where he does it. And he makes some wonderful observations about worship and some warnings. So in other words, imagine Solomon's gone to the temple, now he's observing what's going on. And he's got some criticisms and he's got some direction, he's got some warnings. Um, Just quickly, in terms of temple worship, uh, in Solomon's time, he built the temple in Jerusalem. It communicated that God was distant, that he was inaccessible, that he was real, but that you could only access or approach God through a priestly mediator based upon the sacrifice of an innocent victim. For us, this is all a picture of the Lord Jesus, our true high priest. He is God is distant because of sin. He's not limited to the temple. God is everywhere. But between God and man, there is a great gap. There is a separation because of our rebellion, because of our sin against him. But nonetheless, God is pursuing a relationship with us. And so he instituted the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and so on. And then uh, Solomon goes on to say, not only is there a separation, but when you go to the temple... He'd observe the opposite. He's, God sees and God hears everything that you say. So make sure your motives are right because God is watching and listening and he will evaluate your heart performance. He talks about God being angry at people who say things that they don't mean, who make a vow but don't keep it. So he invites the people, draw near to God to listen. When you go to the temple to sacrifice, that's silent. Then the priest will read the Torah, some of the law, listen to what God's saying to you. God speaks to us through his word and back in Solomon's time. And the response to that should be one of fear, to respect and fear him, to respond, to make a response, but to make sure you keep it. If you like, chapter 5, verses 1 to 7 is almost like the application to chapters 1 to 4, that all this has gone on and then he applies it. Then in chapter 7 to 11, he'll do it again, and in chapter 12, he will again apply it. So for us, as we think about our worship because of Jesus, um, we should develop and be careful of our attitude. As we prepare ourselves, we prepare our clothes and our hair and our face, we get ready physically to come to church, to worship. We need also to prepare our hearts, our attitude. Solomon certainly says that to the people. Watch your attitude as you come to worship. Back in Solomon's time and certainly in Jewish worship styles, the praying and the speaking, the vows, had become formalised. They'd become set. Um, That people were praying but without thinking. They were reciting prayers, like the Lord's Prayer, I guess, Um, reciting prayers like the Shema, 
but without heart. They're just saying the words over and over, like the Catholic beads of praying, Hail Mary or the Our Father or, or whatever. Prayer had been formalised. It was for set times, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock. You could pray at any time, but they were the set formal times and in set places, preferably in the temple, but also later on it would be in the synagogue. And Jesus certainly spoke about they love street corners. Oh, when there was a crowd coming, you would see the Jewish Phar- the Pharisees uh, taking their prayer position. They had a particular way that they stood and looked up to heaven. And then as the crowd gathered round, he would begin to recite his prayers. And the people walking by would go, man, what a godly guy. And it was all done for the performance. And Solomon is calling that out. Well, if we hold the mirror up, do we do this for performance? We need to watch our attitude as we come to worship this same true and living God. So prayers were formalised, prayers were at set times and in set places, but they're also prescribed. All of these formal prayers, if, it was, if there was a bushfire, there was a prayer to pray. If it was raining, there was a prayer to pray. If the sun went down, there was a prayer to pray. As you got up in the morning, there was a prayer to pray. If you travelled, if you were at home... And preferably, the prayers, the longer they were, the better they were. And if you could add volume to it, well, it was just even better again. That's what had happened. And it was happening even all the way back in Solomon's time. And he calls it out. We need to be careful we don't fall into the same ruts. When it comes to saying grace before a meal, you say the same thing over and over and over. You say the words, but the heart doesn't enter in. It's worth evaluating. I hope you don't. I hope that's true for you. So prayer is not about, and approaching God is not about trying to impress God, but rather it's the means of grace that God has given us to express our hearts to him. The danger for us in coming to church and hearing spiritual truth over and over and over, The danger is that we can hear it without embracing it, that we can hear it without responding to it. That just simply leads to either a hardening of the heart or it leads to the development of a habit where we are not doers, we are simply hearers. That's a danger. So when we come, Solomon says, come, draw near to listen. Hear what God's saying. And then respond accordingly, and we'll do that this morning. And then importantly, he says, follow through. If you vow, if you make a commitment, if you make a response, do it. You're better off not making a response than making a response and not doing it. That's what Solomon says. And then we come into the rest of chapter 5 and 6, where he does, again, this deep dive through molasses of living in this horizontal world. Um, he talks about money matters and money does matter there are things about money that we need to understand but he's talking about matters of money that have consumed us and replaced God for us Um, there was a survey done a long time ago and Solomon was certainly a man who loved gold he earned about 23 23 metric tons of gold a year Think of that, $20 million worth of gold or whatever that works out to be. They did a survey. What would you do for $5 million? The survey was actually, what would you be prepared to do for $10 million? 
you may have heard about or um, read about this survey yourself. 25% of the thousands of people who are interviewed, this of course is in the United States, where else? 25% <clears throat> said they would abandon their family. Wow. They'd walk away from their wife and kids for 10 million. It's a lot of money. <laughs> it's been a good 46 years, but you know, $10 million. Um, 23% said they were prepared to become a prostitute for a week. 16% they would give up their citizenship. Mm -hmm. 10 million bucks. 16% said they would leave their spouse. 10% said they would withhold testimony in a court, a murder case, so the murderer would go free. 7% said they would kill a stranger. 3% they would put up their children for adoption. I understand that. <laughs> <clears throat> This one's interesting. 25% of the people said for $10 million they would abandon their church. $10 million? Come on. Wouldn't you? You wouldn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Gee, I'd be tempted to. $10 million. I can leave Sandybank, I just go to another church. What does that reveal? It reveals you're not committed to the church and you are motivated by money. Money matters. That's Solomon's observation that money drives a lot of people. My time's gone, so I've got to go really quick. These are the observations he's made. There is poverty and it's all around us. We should see it, we should acknowledge it and we should respond to it, certainly. And there are ways that we can do that. He talks about prosperity never satisfies. Even though we... Many people are driven by it and pursuing it. And he says these three things. Number one, wealth is not evil. Being rich is not a sin. It's not money which is evil, it's the love of money which is evil. Money certainly attracts a crowd, we all know that. My parents used to teach me that where there's a will, there's a... Where there's a will, there's a way, is the saying. My parents used to say, where there's a will, there's a relative. <laughs> It's true, isn't it? And finally, wealth promotes worry. If you want to be happy, if you want a content life, simplify your life. Has, have less things. Because the more you have, the more you worry. He talks about the worker who works hard, goes home, sleeps well. But he talks about the prosperous person who goes home and doesn't sleep well because he's worried about all of his money and possessions. I've told you before, I'm sure, of a couple in Sydney, they lived in Ashfield, they were Christians, they went to a Presbyterian church, that doesn't matter, but... And they came into money. They went from being just normal middle-class people to suddenly being extremely rich. They modified their house and changed their car, and from that day on that that happened, she would go to church in the morning, and he would go to church at night. They never went to church together again. Why? Because someone always had to be home in case they got robbed. What motivated them? Money. It distracts us. It's nice to have. It's a tool and it's a gift and God gives it to us to enjoy, but not to be primary in our life. Productivity can ruin us, Solomon wants to go on to say. Um, and just quickly, 1 Timothy 6.9 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmless desires. And it plunges people in and they drift away from the faith. 
It's a danger to be aware of living in this world. So what do we do? Well, ultimately, Solomon comes to this big conclusion in chapter 5. We've still got a chapter to go. Be content and enjoy what God gives you. Be grateful, be thankful, look up. Instead of continually pursuing, there's nothing wrong with updating, there's nothing wrong with having possessions, but don't be driven by this life and these things. Be driven by your love for God and His will and His direction for your life. Fly through chapter 6. Prosperity isn't always good. And next week, Tim will talk to you about chapter 7. Adversity isn't always bad. There's only 12 verses in verse 6. Sadly, Solomon observed, that people, there are people who have an abundance, but they're not happy, just like that couple in Sydney. And that's verse 2. There is a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, honour, but he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God doesn't give him the power to enjoy it. That means that enjoying our things is also a gift from God. That God gives us the joy to enjoy what he's given us. Joy doesn't come from the things, it comes from our creator, from our saviour. Longevity without satisfaction. People live long, but they're not satisfied. And he talks about having a very large family, hundreds and hundreds of kids and, and so on. But right in the middle of it, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. In the midst of all that he has, he doesn't notice the good, takes it all for granted, just assume it's there, and it leads to sadness. And then labour without fulfilment. Here is a guy who is driven, who is busy, who is very successful, but he doesn't have any descendants, he doesn't have any family to pass it on to, but it doesn't stop him. He keeps going and going and going. How many more millions does he want? Just one more. Just one more. Who are you going to give it to? Not focused upon that. I want more. That's Solomon's observation. And then he comes down to... For who knows what is good for man when he lives a few days of his vain life, when he passes, you know, into a shadow? Who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We know the answer to that. God can. God has the answers. God gave us the Bible and this portion of his word for us to have a very honest look at life. The Bible knocks us down in order that it can pick us up with the right perspective. It reveals life as it is in order that we might seek and consider life as God meant it to be. The Bible scriptures humble us in order to lift us up, to exalt us. It's a mirror. Look in the mirror and you'll see what's going on for yourself and you'll see that you need forgiveness and you need God's life. Solomon says this back in chapter 3, verse 18. God lets us see it and even do these things and be affected by these things so that, no, so that we would know how sin-affected and sin-infected we are, that we might seek him and his forgiveness. This is the bad news, and I'm closing with this, with the good news in a minute. I see no hope in this, this world from this horizontal perspective that it'll ever change or that we will ever begin to cooperate with one another. The world will remain competitive, oppressive, and driven, chasing the wind. It has for the last 3,000 years. Solomon wrote this back in 922 BC. Here we are in 2022 AD, 3,000 years later, almost 3,000 years later. I see no hope of the humanist dream of the world becoming a united human race, removing injustice and inequality, 
That's a dream. It will not happen. It's chasing the wind. But here is the good news. That God in Jesus hasn't given up on us. And in his son, he has planted the seeds of a new humanity. There's a new world coming. And for those of us who believe and receive Jesus, for those of us who look up to God and seek God's answers on life's dilemmas, God is forming a new race. He transfers us from the kingdom of self and this fallen world into the kingdom of his son. And those in that kingdom will be characterized by cooperation, not competition, of liberation, not oppression, of contentment, not covetousness, of being together, not of loneliness. He's doing this right now in this place and in many places as individuals become partners with him, partners with Jesus. Two is better than one. And because of Jesus, Solomon's statement that we are better off dead is true. We are better off dead because we go to be with him. Separation is certainly easier than integration. Seclusion is easier than assimilation. But easier is not better. God made us to be knit together in meaningful relationships with him, with brothers and sisters, with one another, through fellowship, through friendship, through marriage, through teammates, and so on. We're going to pray. Let's pray together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we've been looking with Solomon at life under the sun. And we've been warned and reminded that life can be unfair, that life is competitive and full of envy and jealousy, that many people can be lonely and driven. And the solution, Lord, as you've told us, is life in life we need companions. We need not only one another, but we especially need you. We need you in the person of Jesus. So I pray that you would help us to walk closely with you, to fear you, respect you, to obey you, and to be prepared to face you. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.